EarthUp, our sponsor for the month of September. EarthUp enables employers to crowdsource corporate emissions reductions from their employees. This bottom-up approach reduces costs for sustainability teams while de-risking a company's emissions reduction strategy. Luma, you are uh, just an incredible entrepreneur, and like like me, you have more than one business. <laughs> so I, I think for our fun question to break the ice, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your other big business, your consumer-facing business, because it sounds like you're a hardcore finance person, but there's also some some fun lurking in the background there. <laughs> Well, I think so, yes. <laughs> There's a little bit of fun in my life, yes. Uh, <laughs> which is basically a, a fashion brand, women wear. it's a sustainable women wear brand called Bailuma. It's based in Spain. And it was, uh, the whole idea was started in around 2017. Uh, it was to cater for professional women uh, who I believe don't find their, you know, the right attire as businesswomen, whether they're, you know, at work or even in social events. It's when you're wearing your corporate hat, it requires a different kind of attire, which I believe is very hard to find based on personal experience. Uh, and that was the idea. But obviously, it was also going to be uh, based on things that for me are important, which is sustainability and, uh, you know, durable, etc. And so the main tenets that uh, the brand is based on are things like natural fibers, uh, you, you know, from outside and inside. So even the lining is natural fabrics. We also take care of, uh, of our carbon footprint. So where we buy, we, it's based in Spain because of the quality that we want to achieve. We buy from Italy, we produce in Spain, we work with tiny ateliers in Spain, family, all family-owned. We actually know the people we're working with. We know their faces and names, which I think is amazing. Our team is 100% women, and we have very flexible uh, work arrangements. Some work from home completely, uh, and some work part-time. It's, you know, it's very uh, women-supportive, let's say. And we sell now in Europe, in the Middle East, and a little bit in North America. Um, I guess we're quite, you know, happy with with where we are at the moment. It's uh, it's a great thing. Well, my order is not here in time for me to wear it on the podcast, unfortunately. But the clothes are absolutely beautiful, and I just love the idea. You know, we spend a little bit more upfront for an investment, and we're also investing in the communities and in the women behind the brand. So. It's just so cool. So everybody go check out Biloma. We'll have the link in, in the resources. Anyhow, that's, that's a fun way to start with another entrepreneur working in sustainable fashion. But let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is that our podcast, ESG Decoded, is very U.S.-centric. Obviously, we work in the U.S. Our clients are mostly multinationals, mostly headquartered in the U.S., so Sometimes we can get a little bit myopic there um, and looking at just that North American perspective. And so you are dialing in from Dubai and have just an immense amount of experience in the Middle East um, generally. And so wanted to hear a little bit about what's happening with ESG, sustainable finance, and, and all of the related, <laughs> uh, related responsible investment tracks from where you sit. 
Wow, that is one big question. <laughs> Let's try and, and answer it. Look, I think in so many ways, the, I mean, the Middle East, first of all, I guess, is, is a huge area. And we're talking about, if you only take the Arab part of the, of the Middle East, you're talking about 22 countries, 400 million people. So that's quite diverse, but they're countries. So that means, unlike the US, for example, or even Europe, that are more you know, similar within a range. In the, in the Middle East, we have huge differences. Poorer countries, but then we have the oil producers. Uh, so we have, we have uh, countries that have uh, stressed water issues, huge stressed water issues. And we, have, and we have countries that have a lot of natural resources. It's really diverse. So it's hard to paint like, like one broad brush around, especially sustainability and ESG, around all of them. But what I would say is that uh, there is probably a difference between where the governments are and where everyone else is. Uh, the governments have, in terms of, let's say, climate change, they've already uh, put their NDCs in, you know, Paris Agreement, they've already committed. Uh, to various things, some of them very ambitious, like say the UAE and Saudi, where they have uh, committed to net zero by uh, UAE by 2050, Saudi by 2060. But there are others that are poorer, say Jordan and Egypt. They have committed to reduction of emissions in certain sectors, but for that the amounts required are huge. I mean, Egypt requires something in the range of 246 billion to reduce emissions by 2030 in only three sectors. That is an incredible amount. So, so that's on the, let's say, on the government level. Uh, they've also committed to, to SDGs as well um, by 2030, but that is, I would say, at the moment, taking, taking the, uh, it's, it's not as, as let's say, uh, active uh, as, as climate. In terms of companies, it's a little bit different, but again, it, it's, like, it's like a lot of other places in the world where this is a new concept, Some, and you have the whole spectrum. You have companies who have no idea what is going on, but you also have a lot of companies that are already progressing. Uh, some companies do have targets, some companies have proper reporting procedures. They already have strategic plans in relation to whether climate or ESG generally or sustainability generally. And you have companies that only have CSR, you know, some philanthropic uh, activities. So you really have <laughs> the whole spectrum. And part of the work I do is actually that, is trying to help companies understand why, what is sustainability, why it's useful to them, how, how to put their strategic plans in place in terms of sustainability that fit the company plans and so on. So there's quite a bit of work that can be done, but I think generally speaking, it's positive. Well, I also, let me just quickly spell out a few things. So SDGs, you mentioned the Sustainable Development Goals, that's the UN Sustainable Development Agenda that most think not all countries have signed on to and a lot of companies have committed to as, as a framework for for sort of narrowing down, right? We we could we can't be all things to all people. No company can be all things to all people. Mm. So how do we kind of narrow down in the universe of good that can be done and sustainable development, right? Is economic development that takes into account these other considerations such as the environment and 
poverty and all, all those sorts of things, right? So that I just wanted to briefly explain SDGs. And then you, hold on, there was another acronym you said. I want to make sure. Oh, probably the NDCs. Oh, right. Yes. The NDCs at the beginning, the nationally determined contribution. So that's the percentage that each country has committed to reduce to help the world meet the, the goals of the Paris Agreement. And then one more was the CSR. And that's something we don't hear a lot because it's kind of a, almost passe now, the corporate social responsibility, which is what all of this really was called for the first 15 years, right? When we talked about corporations looking at ways to recognize that they play a role in society, um, that they don't operate in a vacuum, and and that they, uh, you know, has, has sort of morphed into more of this corporate philanthropy, even though that's not all it was or is. So, um, thank you for bringing that up because I love these these quick learning moments for folks that are are just learning about this space. So, no, I think that's great, and I I totally you know, obviously we would probably need 22 guests from each country that you mentioned, <laughs> right, to to really get in the weeds on what's happening locally. But but you do have this really extensive market experience, um, and I think if I'm Correct me if I'm wrong, but if Dubai financial markets are quite sophisticated, um, perhaps compared to some of the other countries um, in the region, and they're sort of a, a leader, I, I'm curious from the Dubai perspective, right, where you are, what's sort of the top issues that folks are focusing on? It sounded like climate came up a lot, which makes sense when you have highly water stressed countries, um, but sort of what's top of mind in financial markets? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as I said, the, the, yes, the U, let's say the UAE is definitely one of the, the most advanced in terms of sustainability generally and, and uh, climate specifically. Uh, and they are also uh, setting themselves up to be the leaders in the region for, for this area. Uh, and you mm-hmm. probably know COP28 is going to be hosted in Dubai next year. Um, and that is another, let's say, part of their commitment to to yeah. uh, reinforce climate and to, to be working towards it and towards the leadership in, in that range. Uh, so at the government level, yes, the, the commitment has already been made that by 2050 it will have uh, net zero emissions. Uh, and then when you take the, the, seven, the seven emirates that constitute... The UAE, you have the biggest players, let's say, are Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Dubai has already right. achieved around 15% clean energy as of today. Uh, and wow. by 2030, they are looking at another to complete 50% clean energy. So that by 2050, we're talking clean energy, not, not even net, you know, so net zero, but it's really based on clean energy. Abu Dhabi is committed is committed to achieve 50% clean energy by 2050. So, and the totality is going to be net zero emissions at that point in time. Obviously, Abu Dhabi has a lot more oil, and and so there is uh, there is that angle there that would change the economy. Now, all of the government institutions are backing all of these initiatives. So uh, you have DIWA, for example, uh, and DIWA is the Dubai Electricity and Water Authority. They are on track 
to achieving all of this uh, changing energy to solar energy. They've already invested uh, in the um, in the Dubai solar park, which is the largest by far in the Middle East. And you also have Mazdar, which is in Abu Dhabi, another huge solar tower. Uh, so as far as the UAE is concerned and climate specifically, we are definitely on, on track for that. So the amount of financing needed to shift the economy uh, to more uh, cleaner economy is astronomical, as we said. And so we're already starting to see some initiatives on this front by a lot of institutions to raise financing to support all of these initiatives. And I would say the there are mostly we have seen a lot of banks, for example, uh, start this process, uh, like the first Abu Dhabi Bank. Uh, but you also have other others in the region as well who have who have done that, who have issued uh, sustainable bonds, uh, and in some cases they were sukuk, so they have uh, uh, values or ethical based angle that is a sharia based angle, which is the way Islamic finance works, but that is another section of the financial market. So to talk about the financing that is required for the region, as we said, huge numbers, and we have already seen a lot of financing happening in the region to support some of these activities. Uh, I think I would say that the ones I'm pleased about most is when we see banks uh, borrowing uh, green or uh, sustainable loans, because by definition, that means that they are going to obviously on lend them for the same for the same uh, type of, uh, of financing. And therefore, they are going to take it deeper to the next level, if you like, in the community. So we have seen uh, first uh, first Abu Dhabi Bank, which is the largest bank in the UAE, already uh, issue uh, green bonds. We have, But we have also seen, in, that, in the specific case of banks, we have also seen other um, financings come out of the region. So we've seen in Saudi, the Saudi National Bank, we've seen Qatar National Bank. Uh, Kuwait. So that that is great because, as I said, the, the amounts we need are, are huge. Uh, we have also seen a lot of uh, loans, uh, sustainable uh, sustainable linked uh, loans or sustainability linked loans. And also we have seen green loans. We have seen sovereign from the sovereigns in Egypt. Um, and we have seen a lot of issuances from corporates as well. So we have seen in the UAE, real estate, bank, it, 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 the activity is in, on the financing side is very, very active and is continuing to happen. I can't say the amounts are huge, but I think in terms of the levels that we have seen between, let's say, 29 to now, we have, we have 200% growth every year, if not more, in terms of, of uh, With green financing that's happening. Was that since 2019? Did you I say 2019 say or 2009? 2019. 2019. Okay. okay. I think the last, the last two years have seen an incredible amount of growth. Before that, there were sporadic, you know, one every every bit, but now we see it's more common and it's coming to the market more and more. The one thing that is interesting, obviously, is that there is huge growth in, in the region and uh, uh, ironically, partly is because of the increase in oil prices. 
So the oil, the oil prices are actually financing the move to low carbon economy, um, which is a paradox, but it is kind of reality at the moment. And, and that is actually helping the government uh, push forward with their agendas to, to achieve a lot of these uh, uh, goals by 2050. So interesting. Yeah. No, thank you so much for painting really the, the such a broad picture. Uh, it's it's sort of um, it's very similar to U.S. markets in that sense that the growth in sustainability linked bonds and green finance has really skyrocketed. I agree. 2019 was kind of like the big banner change year, at least in Houston and oil and gas um, specifically. But but more broadly speaking, there's um, you know some great charts that you that folks can look up the sustainable investment foundation there's all kinds of um, great charts that show it just going you know it was like the first bond was issued in 2008 or something like that and you know little 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 and then whoop suddenly so, um, yeah yeah and i i think that that's a just a recognition from financial markets that there is a way to i mean if i'm not if i'm going to be optimistic right it's 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 a recognition by markets that there's a money to be made in the, in 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 broader if we're if we're trying to build a more sustainable world there's money to be made doing that right and then also that there is there are ways you know finance is famous for innovation right new and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's, it has bad consequences right but I think in this case it's a way that 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 folks have come up with to tie your your financing to a specific environmental goal or sometimes a, a, a social goal maybe or poverty reduction. I mean, there's all kinds of more different types of things, although, of course, the vast majority is focused on environmental protection and, and climate issues. So super interesting. And I think uh, a really interesting parallel with um, what we're seeing in the U.S. as well, this kind of rapid uptake in the past few years. I think that the the point you 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 talk is you talk about, which is the the opportunity in all of these financings. I think this is the point that I would really like to drum very much because, as I said, the amount of financing. I mean, just to achieve NDCs for the for MENA, you need nationally <laughs> uh, nationally determined commitments for under the Paris Agreement, you need something in the range of $600 billion uh, to achieve it by 20, 2050. And the, uh, the problem is, is that the amount of my, if you look at, as we said, the poor countries and so on, where is this financing going to come from? There's no way that governments can come up with with that kind of money. So the only way to, to bring that money in is the involvement of the private sector. And we're hoping that the COP27, which is going to be held in Egypt in November, and then 28 in the UAE next year, are going to uh, engage the private sector to understand the amount of financing required and therefore the amount of opportunity required, uh, sorry, available to them, uh, that they can if you know if they take this opportunity and also of course they need to understand that the governments alone cannot achieve any of this i mean the, the governments can commit to anything they want but in reality it has to be everybody on the ground organizations civil society everybody working together to achieve these goals 
And so the private sector needs to get involved more and create more opportunities to achieve all of these numbers and for the benefit of everybody, I guess. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest, you know, points that I've personally seen help companies to transform around um, culture-wise, strategy-wise, is when folks realize, hey, there's a deeper purpose here. And and the, the, the deeper purpose is something, you know, people can say what they want about climate science or climate change or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> that aside, everybody can get on board with having a clean, cleaner air. Everyone can get on board with having cleaner economy. So let's take the moment instead of being cynical and tearing down the good work people are trying to do, which is unfortunately daily, you know, let's say, hey, there's this is an opportunity for us to come together, not just to sing Kumbaya and not just to, you know, have a have a, a moment of connection, not that that would be a bad thing, right, of human connection, but also to, to see this, op- this massive opportunity and and jump into it right and i think that's that's when companies specifically i'm thinking about corporate clients or even capital markets clients when they wrap their heads around that like wow there's something that we can all get up no matter what type of company i work for i work for a manufacturing company i work for an oil and gas company i work for whatever company it is i can get up every day and say i'm i'm helping do my part to have a cleaner future so we leave a better world for our grandchildren to reduce poverty the other sdgs clean water sanitation all the things that are broadly part of a more sustainable future when a when a company can get on board and help their employees understand that they're part of that larger purpose i've really seen magic happen in companies and then then the creativity flows the innovation flows and it's just kind of you know sky's Sky's the limit, right? And I think um, that's something that a lot of the skeptics and naysayers aren't seeing is that is that opportunity side and how it can be trans- so transformative for an organization. Look, I think what again, this you're pointing to one of the dilemmas or the issues that we're facing when we talk to companies and right now, which is. You know, there's quite a bit of backlash, if I can say, on the media, and there's a lot that being talked about negatively, about ESG, about sustainability, is it working, is it not working? And I always say that perhaps the issue is the definitions. Are we talking all, are we all saying the same thing? Are When, when investors are saying uh, reporting or uh, financial reporting or ESG financial reporting, are they meaning the same thing as what consumers are expecting? For example, when when typically, and I say typically because there is no definition right now, but when you talk about ESG investing from the, let's say, investors and maybe rating agencies' point of view, generally speaking, they are, they are they're looking at the impact that uh, sustainable factors have on the company, its performance, and therefore, valuation. But that is not the same as when we talk about impact investing, which is it's the impact that the organizations have on the uh, on the climate, on 
you know, the society around them, so on sustainability. And therefore, the expectations are a little bit bizarre, I would say, you know, and, and you see all what's happening now, ESG is failing, etc. So you have, for example, a couple of years ago when McDonald's rating was upgraded in uh, uh, MSCI, and basically part of the rationale was saying that they have taken the, the uh, carbon emissions out of the calculation. And so they, they basically put them up That's in rating. Score. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're saying that uh, climate does not have an impact on the bottom line of the company. So that kind of, if that's what you're rating, then okay, I get it. But is that what I'm expecting as a consumer? Do I accept that as a mm. consumer? Uh, take mm. what happened recently with um, Schroeder's, uh, you know, in I think just in July, when they voted against the Sainsbury's shareholders' decision to increase salaries uh, to mm. living wages. Because they're saying that if we accept that, then it means that Sainsbury in the future would not be able to compete against other supermarkets uh, and reduce, you know, reduce their cost base, basically. So they're looking at this from a pure financial point of view. Okay, Is that acceptable to us? Again, there are other examples. Tesla, it's, mm-hmm. you know, what happened recently. It's, yeah. There's a lot. And I think part, that's part of, of the, the, the issue is that what, what do we mean when we say, and is that what consumers yeah. accept? So that is one part of the dilemma. But the other part of the dilemma is the trade-off and whether consumers are actually ready to accept what it means to make these shifts. So I think a couple of, maybe last week, the Oregon State, you know, in, in the U.S., the wildfire department, they changed the, the wildfire map uh, basically setting out, you know, with the hot zones, basically, which uh, the, the riskier areas and so on. And so immediately they got these thousands of complaints from homeowners because, one, mm. they were worried that their insurances would go up. They were also right. worried that if they are in a higher risk zone, also the value of the property is going to come down. So these are real implications and these are real consequences of a lot of the things we're trying to do. Any proposal, uh, for example, the UK, they want to, they have just announced a, a proposal to stop uh, sewage, uh, sewage discharge that will cost something in the range of 60, uh, 65 billion pounds. And they're asking companies, obviously, to stop the, the, the discharge and there are certain costs for the changes that need to ensue. But of course, Who's going to carry that charge? Consumers. So they had to put in a clause whereby they, they you cannot ch- charge or pass on more than, I think, a pound per month, etc. So what I'm trying to say is that there are two sides to this equation. What do we mean by it? As investors, what are we focusing on? Is that acceptable or not? But also as consumers, will we accept some of these things? And I think there is no easy answer to this. You know, there's no easy answer, but at least for the time being, I think the focus has got to be on transparency. The rating mm-hmm. agencies have to tell us exactly what the rating basis is on, you know, like this is how I'm rating. And then it's up to me as investor or consumer to accept that or not. But as long as at least I know what is happening. And obviously another yeah. thing is we need governments to act more 
but that is a very, very lengthy process. You need policies, you need um, legislation, mm -hmm. and that is not an easy and e or, or quick uh, solution to any of these to any of these topics. I think that you just did such a wonderful job, really parsing out some of the difficulty and oh, and why people shouldn't oversimplify this discussion, and that's honestly the biggest frustration for me is just I see these super oversimplified, you know, headlines that frankly don't even make sense because ESG is to your point. I mean, we have a resp responsible investment continuum, right? At the shallow end of the pool, thanks to Kevin Pasha, <laughs> friend, I actually did get him on the podcast, ta taught me that analogy, which is shallow end of the pool is a negative screen. Just like, hey, I don't want tobacco, right? Then we have ESG investing where an investor is actively and formally looking at what they choose as as important ES and G factors, right? That they have set out. And those, to your point, can vary. They can vary widely depending on the goals of a particular portfolio, depending on how a rating is set up and what they're actually measuring you on. That's why there's so much variety is because it is up to the either the company that's deciding what's material, what to report, or the consumer of that information, like a rating agency or an investor, to decide what they think is as a material factor. So it's it can vary. There might be an investor that thinks climate change is the most material factor, and then there's others that they really care about safety and they don't care about climate or whatever. Right? It's it's completely up to. Um, the company and the consumer. And then you get into that deeper end of the pool of impact investing, which is totally different. So it's like there's this, I, I totally agree. And I love that dichotomy of like consumers and companies because it's, it's definitely part of the paradox. Super, super helpful way to think of it. But for the record, I do think ESG has a definition and, and everyone can go listen to our first, <laughs> our first episode <laughs> of what is ESG. To hear my definition, because it's obviously not a, to your point, it's not a like a simple one sentence, right? But I think that's, that's again, part of the problem. And then everybody's conflating like ESG with one issue that they think is unpalatable. So they'll say it when they really mean climate change, or they'll say it when they really mean yeah. diversity, equity, and inclusion, or they'll say ESG when they really mean, you know, you name it, it's usually those two. But that's the other part, you know, back to your point is like, people should use the right terminology. If we use the right terminology, we would be a little bit less confused, I think. Absolutely, <laughs> so absolutely. absolutely. Then at least yeah. you can decide if this is for you or not. Right, right, totally. Well, Lima, this has been absolutely a pleasure. I'm so grateful that you've been our guest today and um, thank you. I know it was a little rough start this morning for me, so I really appreciate you, your patience and ability to kind of go over time here. Really appreciate it. No problems, no problem. I'm really happy and it was a lovely conversation as, uh, you know, as I expected, you know, I've listened to many of the, of your podcasts and they are very informative and always, you know, have something, you know, but quite insightful is, is the word I would use. So thank you also for organizing thank these. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's our goal is to get beyond the headlines and really talk about the, 
facts on the ground and the, the pragmatic view and really get into the issues. So thank you for saying that. That's, that's our goal and we're trying to do, do that every time. So I, and, and having your perspective has really absolutely achieved that. I think folks will come away with, with a much deeper understanding of, of not only what's happening in your part of the world, but also the broader ESG debate. So thank you so much for weighing in. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks again to our sponsor, EarthUp, whose mission is to make sustainability a part of everyone's job so companies can meet their emissions goals. Visit them at earthup.eco.